Critical Care Practitioner Podcast number 24. Welcome to another episode of Critical Care Practitioner Podcast. My name is Jonathan Downham and this is the podcast to inform, debate and discuss all things critical care, wherever in your hospital that might be. Get ready. Hello, 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 and welcome back to the Critical Care Practitioner Podcast. It's nice to have you back again. I hope you're enjoying the weekly episodes that I'm trying to produce. I'm not sure how much longer I'm going to be producing weekly episodes for, but as I've said before, it's nice to get some of the backlog out of the way so that the valuable content that people have been kind enough to give me, you can listen to sooner rather than later. This week's podcast is a continuation of a podcast I did with a gentleman called Ollie Poole who is a Canadian respiratory therapist. Ollie and I spoke a few podcasts ago and we were talking about his series on YouTube, which is a fabulous series about mechanical ventilation and some of the indications for and some of the complicated terminology behind it. So I got in touch with Ollie and asked him if he wouldn't mind doing a series of podcasts with me for those of you who are involved in mechanical ventilation And I think useful for those of you who aren't so involved with it as well, because it can be a bit of a mystery, and it shouldn't be. It's not particularly a frightening thing to do once you know what you're doing, as with anything, I guess. So in this episode, we talk to Ollie, and we start with the basics. We kind of got ahead of ourselves a little on the last podcast, so we decided to start with the basics on this one. So without further ado, here's Ollie, and I'll speak to you afterwards. Okay, so Ollie, let's talk about the goals and indications for mechanical ventilation because I think before we get into some of the more intricate details of the ways in which we can mechanically ventilate people, let's try and help some people understand exactly why we would put somebody on mechanical ventilation, uh, what the indications are and the whole point of the exercise. We can break down the goals and then break down the indications perhaps because they might they're often a little different so when we talk about what our goals are for ventilation um, it's important as I stressed at the start of the video is just to get an appreciation that even though these people are, are critically ill and are in an intensive care unit or intensive treatment unit then the mechanical ventilation itself usually isn't something which is correcting any kind of underlying pathology this is it's it's very much a supportive care so mechanical ventilation in critical care is is used to sort of support people through a severe stage of illness while we correct whatever it is that brought them in so in terms of our goals with with ventilation it's it's often ties along with that supportive realm we're looking to we're looking to normalize their arterial blood gas the arterial blood gas is a sort of a, a classic thing which we'll use to monitor ventilation and and monitor the sort of respiratory and metabolic status of someone who's critically ill so primary goal really is to is to normalize that arterial blood gas 
And we do that in a couple of ways. We, we want to normalize the acid base portion of our gas. So we want to make sure that their pH is in a range that firstly is sort of conducive with life and is something that we're, we're happy with and is within our goals. We want to normalize their oxygenation, their ability to oxygenate their tissues, diffuse oxygen across the alveolar capillary membrane, get it to the tissues and sort of feed those metabolic processes. And we want to normalize their carbon dioxide, their dissolved or their partial pressure of carbon dioxide, because that's really a byproduct of metabolism. These people are often in a hypermetabolic state and we, we want to ensure that we clear, we clear CO2 from their system using ventilation. Those are the sort of three goals from the blood gas state is to normalize their pH and their acid base to normalize their oxygenation and their ventilation. Secondly, we want to unload the sort of work of breathing that these people, that these patients have. Often a time that's either sort of reducing a work of breathing or completely taking over the patient's work of breathing using using the ventilator. Okay, just to go back to the blood gas a little bit, other than blood gases, is there anything that would, uh, because there's many patients that go on to uh, ventilatory support, not necessarily just because of a blood gas disorder, um, what kind of circumstances would, would lead you to perhaps ventilate somebody, okay, their blood gas might be deranged, but that's not necessarily the main driving reason for that patient going onto the ventilator? Right. So yeah, you raised a good point that having somebody who simply has an arterial blood gas, an issue or a sort of a deviation from a normal arterial blood gas isn't perhaps in itself an indication to put someone on a mechanical ventilator. An example that we can use is someone who maybe has a has a very low PO2, so they're, they're dissolved PO2 and, and then maybe a low oxygen saturation. So that in itself, even though that would constitute type one respiratory failure, that in itself isn't an indication to put someone on a ventilator because you can give somebody supplemental oxygen by mask. You can give them oxygen in other ways, which maybe can correct that disorder without having to ventilate them. So we usually, it, it's a clinical decision and it's, we look at a, a number of factors and you need to look at the person's ability to, to maintain their own ventilation, which is a key thing. So that's where we start to look to look at their sort of work of breathing and whether or not, I mean, you can see when somebody is going into respiratory failure, whether that's a, a CO2 based failure or a, an oxygen failure or both, which is often the case, you can kind of get a clinical picture of whether or not you think that person's going to be able to maintain themselves and whether they're going to be able to correct that by themselves without any sort of ventilatory support. So that can often be a, often be a sort of clinical decision. But then we can look at, there are some more objective measurements you can look at, like you can look at their respiratory muscle strength non-invasively by measuring that. Uh, we call those like negative inspired force, or we can measure their vital capacity, which uh, is, is a long volume we can, we can get into later on. Um, but there are some more objective measures you can use to, to see whether or not somebody's getting towards that point where they're, they're going to need assistance. Okay. So from the end of the bed, you're talking about a clinical picture, you so right. you can use some of the clinical signs. Um, what, what do you mean by the, the clinical signs that would make it fairly evident that somebody is heading towards ventilation? I think if, if I walked into a patient's room and I saw somebody who was evidently short of breath, like, like drastically short of breath, perhaps not able to really mentate well if you talk to them then that they're not really communicating very well that they might be a little bit um as you start to retain co2 from hypoventilation 
you can become like what CO2 narcotized. You can get a sort of narcosis from that. And they, so they almost appear, so their level of consciousness drops. And so if, if I started to detect that somebody, certainly if I started to detect that somebody wasn't able to protect their airway because they've had such a, a drop in their level of consciousness, that would be, that would be a big sign for me to, to, to move quickly with something. It's if you can usually get a picture of somebody who's beginning to tire as well. If somebody's looking fairly fatigued and fairly, they're, they're trying to they're trying to breathe, but it, the, the the effort they're putting into breathe just looks like it's exhausting them. And some of the signs you can see for that um, are uh, the accessory muscle use. So you can see them using accessory muscles to breathe, like the sternocleidomastoid and the pectoral muscles and is often you can uh, more so in children but often adults you can see sort of nasal flaring um sort of indrawing and uh, above the clavicle supraclavicular indrawing and uh, between the ribs and you can see them just sort of sucking in and really having to work quite hard to breathe uh, a common one with like chronic respiratory failure is you see the sort of tripoding where two hands go down onto the side of the bed or onto the mattress and they have to plant their two hands down just to just to take breaths in that's usually, it's usually a pretty good sign and they do and physi physiologically why are they doing that well there's the reason that they're planting their hands down is actually quite interesting um by planting their hands it it changes the the origin and insertion of the of the pectoral muscles so that they're actually able to instead of pulling the arm inwards towards them, sort of, um, sort of adducting that, their arm inwards, it allows them to pull the rib cage up. So that mm -hmm. by, by planting their arms, they can use their pectoral muscles to pull the rib cage upwards. And anything which like pulls the rib cage upwards increases the volume and helps them pull air into the lung. And then it's really just a case where they get, at that point, if somebody's in that much dist distress, that's a pretty clear cut indication that they need some degree of ventilatory support. The reason I'm trying to pin you down on this is a little bit is because one of the things that um, I think is often a failing of the less experienced members of staff, and I'm not necessarily talking about intensive care staff here, but I think some of my audience are, um, newly qualified staff nurses or even um, sometimes student nurses and one of the big issues I have with um, the observations that are done is that the respiratory rate is often the one that is shall we say guesstimated oh, yeah. is that perhaps a fair way yeah. of saying it rather than actually measured properly right and I've always said to them if you're not going to do if you if you're only going to do one observation for me the one I would want you to do properly and thoroughly is measurement of the respiratory rate. Mm -hmm. Now, I know why I'm saying that, but can you explain to my audience why I'm saying that? Firstly, I agree in that it, it's of the vital signs. It's one that's usually sort of guesstimated slash made up. And we tend to look at someone and say, yeah, they look fairly normal. So I'm going to write down 14 kind of thing. Um, the reason that people overlook it is it can sometimes be like classically we're taught to um, we're taught to measure this over 30 seconds and we'll take the pulse and for the first 30 seconds of the minute you're going to count the pulse beats and then in the second 30 seconds you're going to count their respiratory rate whereas in real life situations that's often not going to be the case you're not going to stand there with your watch for 30 seconds and watch somebody's respiratory rate you can often get a picture of this just from from looking at them so i think people just tend to not do it as they go through their training in vital signs because it can often be difficult to see it can be difficult to see the chest moving so i, I don't know whether people just end up neglecting it 
but it tends to be underused. I agree. And and why do you think what what I know the reasons I would give for mm-hmm. the respiratory rate being so important? Um, what's your spit? How would you explain that to somebody who is less experienced as to why the respiratory rate is such an important marker of a patient's ill health? Okay, um, I think it can tell you a lot about their what the underlying issue is and we'll take a couple of examples let's take one that's very slow and then maybe one that's very quick um if you take if you look into a patient's room and you see them take a breath and the way i usually do it is i'll count between breaths so i'll i'll count what because that's how we do it in ventilation we count time between breaths and by you can then calculate your, your rate but if you see someone breathing at a rate that's very very slow sort of four to six breaths a minute Mm-hmm. That tells you a lot about what's happening at the alveolar level. If you think about alveolar ventilation and how that relates to our ability to clear CO2 and our ability to oxygenate the body, someone who's breathing very, very slow, unless they're breathing extremely deeply, is unlikely to be generating a, a high enough minute ventilation to to really um, to really maintain their their homeostasis and maintain their blood gas. So mm-hmm. slow is is often a, a worrying sign because it's it usually doesn't start slow. It usually starts normal and gets progressively slower as these people get sicker and sicker and, and their level of consciousness starts to drop. So I immediately think of level of consciousness when I see someone who's breathing very slowly. That or either narcotics or uh, some sort of drug overdose, CO2, high CO2 levels, that kind of thing. Maybe high sugars, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. So, so low can be very concerning. And then when you start getting into a very high respiratory rate, um, RTs start to worry about, well, any, any respiratory care practitioner starts to worry about how deeply they're breathing c- compared to how fast they're breathing. We, t- we talk about this rapid, shallow breathing pattern and somebody breathing very, very quickly, often they don't breathe very deep. So they end up a large percentage of the volume that they're bringing in and out per breath ends up just washing in and out of their anatomical dead space. And yeah. therefore that they're not, they're not getting effective alveolar ventilation. <clears throat> so if you take, I think the average is for a sort of average 70 kilo male, which no one ever seems to be, um, about 150 mils per breath is, is essentially useless ventilation that's just washing out dead space. So if somebody's only breathing 250 mils a breath, but doing it 50 times a minute, that doesn't mean that everything's fine because it's 250 times 50. Really, alveolar ventilation in that sense is, is very low. They're only getting about 100 mils of alveolar ventilation per breath. So that's where we start to worry with, with the rapid rate. And, and that can lead to sort of profound, uh, almost paradoxically, it can, it can lead to hypoventilation because they're not, their alveolar ventilation isn't high enough. Yeah, awesome. Okay, excellent. Um, and, and one of the other features I often talk to um, um, students uh, and those less experienced about it as well, that the ventilation process is also um, related very much to the metabolic issues mm-hmm. that, are, that are underlying the patient's condition. Yeah, so absolutely. when the patient starts to breathe quickly or slowly, it can be because there's a metabolic issue right. going on as well. Um, and they're compensating for that. But I think mm-hmm. metabolic and respiratory compensation is perhaps something we best cover at another time because yeah, that's, sure. a, that's a whole subject by yeah. itself. But a, a classic, just, just to give a classic example of that, one of the big ones 
for the metabolic compensation is the sort of Kussmaul's breathing, where someone is in a, a diabetic ketoacidosis, and and you can see a, a very very distinct breathing pattern of, um, in, in that sense, it's not rapid shallow, but that they're taking very big breaths very very quickly, and that's to try and clear as much acid as they can from the system. So it, it, it's a good example of how an increase in respiratory rate is often a sign of metabolic disorder for sure. Yeah, sure. And one of the things um, I want to point people towards is uh, you've done a series on um, arterial blood gas mm -hmm. analysis as well, haven't you, on your yeah. YouTube series, um, which is also excellent. Um, and I don't know if you've encountered, um, do you know MedCram at all on YouTube? I don't know. I'll have to look them up. Yeah, go and have a look at his um, M-E-D-C-R-A-M. Um, he's done a very good series. Um, he goes a little bit into the anion gap as well, which yeah. um, I often I often avoid a little bit with the less experienced mm -hmm. because it just tends to frighten people. Yeah. And I, I I think clinically it's not something that we certainly over in the UK necessarily get too excited about. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe maybe it's different in the states and Canada, but it's not something that we get too excited mm -hmm. about over here because it doesn't necessarily change your treatment plan that yeah, much. Yeah, anyway. I'd agree with that. Yeah. Um, I think I'm just wondering, we, we've talked about the, um, the the reasons why you would mechanically ventilate somebody. Um, you, in your first video, also talk about some of the goals of mechanical ventilation. Um, I don't know whether we you, you can talk a little bit about that. Have we covered that yet? I'm not sure that we have yet, have we? So We, we talked a little, bit, a little bit earlier just about our goals of normalizing, normalizing arterial blood gas from the perspective of acid base oxygenation and and co2 clearance and then also the reducing and or slash eliminating work of breathing from the patients is is really the two the two main areas um and then just that sort of supportive management as we as we um, yeah as we uh, get through whatever they're causing to be there I guess the way around my brain was going was that, okay, um, the, some of the things you've mentioned there, we can do without mechanically ventilating people, can't we? Oh, yeah. So why would, why would we choose to mechanically ventilate somebody rather than not mechanically ventilate them to improve those things? What, what, would, what would make the difference there? Well, the, it, the question is, and if you can do it with mechan without uh, mechanically ventilating, then you should. That is the, is the first point. Like the example we gave with... with um, with someone with a very low oxygen sat like they don't necessarily need to be mechanically ventilated but th they might do you may you may take that person who has a very low oxygen sat and we'll and we can give them supplemental oxygen using a face mask but what happens when we get to the to the highest level of face masks we can give and we're still not happy with their oxygen sats that's that's where we start and get into the need to um to be able to use positive pressure to open the lungs, recruit the lung tissue and, and oxygenate that way. But I certainly think if you can, um, if you are able to overcome and correct arterial blood gases and reduce work of breathing without the use of mechanical ventilation, then then you, should, you certainly should. But uh, oftentimes you get to the point where, <clears throat> and I'm not sure how, how it is in your institution, but uh, this may be controversial me saying, but I find we, we tend to get to these people quite late. We, t we tend to end up evaluating these people for their need for 
ventilation support or oxygenation support at a point where we should have been doing this 40 minutes ago and we maybe could have corrected something. So yeah. I, I certainly think that there is, a, there is a, a group of patients who are going to be able to be sort of intervened and corrected uh, without ventilation support beforehand. But it's, we, ventilation is reserved for those ones where we, we really get to the point where either the patient's unable to cooperate or do that themselves or we've kind of exhausted all our options on on the sort of non-invasive front. One, okay. one other, um, I guess one other sort of indication that we didn't really touch on for ventilation um, is for someone who perhaps has normal lung function but is, is simply been intubated for airway protection or is yeah. undergoing general anesthesia or, or, or some, some non, non-critical uh, incident which is causing them, well, it can be a critical incident, causing them to be um, intubated, which isn't necessarily a primary respiratory issue. Smack US, Chicago, June 23rd to 26th, 2015. Nixon, Flower, Weingart, May, Rohi, Malimat, Levitan, Reed, Carly, Rogers. Got the date? June 23rd to 26th, 2015. Smack US, Chicago. Book it now. Fantastic stuff. Thanks, Ollie. I hope that helps clear up some of the mysteries. We are going to continue with this series. Ollie and I are hopefully going to talk to each other again in the next week or two and just move a little bit further ahead. As I said, go to his YouTube site. It's called Respiratory Reviews. He's done a whole series uh, which he uses a Khan Academy style talk and chalk. And they're very, very good. Well worth watching. He's also done an acid-based one as well, so I would recommend that. Next week, we're going to have another interview with Teresa Chin. I don't know those of you who may not know her. She helped kick off my podcast series back in podcast number one, back in February of last year. I can't believe I've been doing this for almost a year now. But Teresa leads the Twitter group at We Nurses and does a fabulous job. You can hear the story of that if you go to podcast one on criticalcarepractitioner.co.uk. The story's on there for you to listen to. I spoke with Teresa probably last October. We recorded this interview, and to my shame, I haven't been able to get it out there until now. And since then, in the New Year's Honours list, she has been awarded an MBE for services to nursing. So it does prove that. You can come from the meekest of backgrounds and as long as you're prepared to put a bit of work in and you've got some great ideas and a good support team around you, then you can achieve wonderful things. So I talked to Teresa about her visit to the Houses of Parliament, amongst other things. So that's next week. So if you want to listen to that, join us for Podcast 25. In my own job, I'm still moving forward with my new career in accident emergency and I've started to be involved with a new Twitter group that we've generated, which is um, at ACP Educate, which is a group run by myself, Martin Horton, who's one of the junior ACPs there, Joe Newman, another junior ACP, and Rob Fenwick, who's one of the trainees who joined me. So we're trying to get together to move forward with some education for ACPs in whatever field they end up in. But obviously our focus is probably going to be A&E to start with. 
But as the team expands, certainly at the heart of England NHS Trust and probably nationally as well, then I would imagine that our remit will grow bigger and bigger. Small acorns, large oaks, etc. It will grow. It's going to take a little while. There's going to be a lot of work going into it. So keep an eye out for us. We have started Google Hangouts on a Thursday at 8 o'clock in the evening as well. Every other Thursday, the next one's on the 22nd. So if you go to my website and click on the Hangout tab, you will see that that's where I host it from. You can sit and watch it live as it happens. We had a bit of a problem on the last one in that towards the end, my computer just decided it was going to die. So it wasn't without its problems, but with practice, then we'll get better and better. And you are more than welcome to come and watch if you want to present something to us. Get in touch with me via at CC Practitioner is probably the quickest way on Twitter. For those of you that aren't on Twitter, it's about time you got there. It's a fabulous way to network and interact and keep up to date. One last thing, a plug for my course in Walsall, which is a history taking and clinical examination course, which is the 23rd to the 25th of February. Um, very valuable days. Myself and another practitioner will help teach you these very important skills. Come and join us. Very, very useful. I've always got very good feedback from my teaching. So if you want to come along, I'd love to see you there as well. Okay, with that, I'm done. Nice to speak to you again. See you next time. Bye-bye. Oh,